This is The Memo by Howard Marks. Today, we're featuring another episode of The Rewind, in which Howard looks back on some of his memos over the years, discusses their origins, and considers their relevance to today's financial environment. In this episode, Howard reflects on memos related to the global financial crisis with Bob O'Leary, the co-portfolio manager for Oak Tree's Global Opportunities Strategy. Howard and Bob were interviewed by Anna Shemansky, Oak Tree's senior financial writer. Here's the conversation. So let's dive right in. I was hoping that to begin, both of you could share some of your memories of the years right before the crisis. What jumped out at you most when you were rereading some of the memos from this period? I think the years 05, 06 into 07 was a generally sanguine period. I think that the economy was operating on a rather smooth trajectory. It wasn't booming, but it was healthy. Investors had suffered the bursting of the TMT, tech media telecom bubble, in 2001 and two for the first three-year decline in the stock market since 1929. But people had rallied. Psychology was back. Investors were seeking return in a rather low return world. Interest rates were moderate or on the low side. And that caused investors to engage in a search for return. Importantly, in the 90s, stocks had done extremely well. And people started to believe, as they do in good times, that the outlook was perfect and that you didn't have to worry about any untoward developments. And then, of course, the TMT bubble bursting dashed that hope. And most people turned very negative on stocks. And so people tended to look elsewhere for returns. I think that was very important because that directed attention to alternative and innovative forms of investing. To me, the most outstanding single development was very, very positive psychology in 0567. I think my first worrisome memo was published at the very end of 04, as I recall. But when the psychology in the world turns unreasonably positive, what Greenspan described irrational exuberance, Bob and I and the rest of us at Oak Tree tend to have a rather jaundiced view of that and to suspect that unfavorable trends are underway. Specifically, I described myself as wearing out the carpet between my office and Bruce Karsh's my partner, I'd pop in there a couple times a day holding up a piece of the newspaper. And I'd say, look at this piece of crap that got issued yesterday. If deals like this can be done, there's something wrong. Risk aversion, fear of loss is the element that keeps markets safe and sane. And when risk aversion evaporates, unwise deals can be done and people take on too much risk. And when they take on too much risk, it's invariably followed by a period in which risk-bearing is punished, not rewarded. So that singular development, five and six, was enough to turn Oak Tree very cautious. We raised our standards for investing. Buffett says the less prudence with which others conduct our affairs, the greater the prudence with which we must conduct our own affairs, and started to prepare for what we thought were going to be tough times. Now, and for my part, reading Howard's memos was a bit of a trip down memory lane and frankly jogged a personal memory of mine, which is that late in 2007, my third son was born, 
whose name is Declan. And Declan is a skeptical soul, but not a pessimistic soul. So I think that may have been a sign of the times. But on a professional level, my most prominent memory was the difficulty with which we had trying to find anything to invest in. We came into 2007. I remember distinctly high-yield spreads in January of that year were at 200 over, which is obviously not enough any way you want to run the math to compensate for potential default risk. And just another sort of indicator of where we were, occasionally we'd go to conferences where they would talk about best ideas, things like that. Those conferences were overrun and everybody was talking about the same idea or ideas. And it was an extreme paucity of things to invest in. We had to really work hard. Luckily, Howard and Bruce had made the decision to sort of downsize the amount of capital we were investing at that amount of time. And so there wasn't all that much urgency for us to do anything. But it was clear that a lot of our competitors were out there having raised much larger funds were frankly in a bit of a panic to get risk on. I also remember very distinctly the sort of formative stages of some of the next series of funds that Howard and Bruce sketched out. They were talking about very large numbers and having joined Oak Tree in 2002, right after the Enron scandals and everything else like that, it was an order of magnitude larger than what we had dealt with at that time. But I think it impressed upon me that they thought something really big was coming and they were absolutely right. So we were getting ready and I think it was quite prescient, frankly, at the time. I want to make one more point. I think we were very well prepared for the developments of 07, 08. And our concern over what was going on in the market was the reason. We had no idea, I had no idea, about subprime mortgages and mortgage-backed securities. All we knew was that the world had become an unsafe place because of investor practices. So this ties into my next question, Howard. In the Race to the Bottom, which was published in February of 2007, you discussed the cheapening of money that you saw during the pre-crisis period. Can you explain how this relates to some of the things that you and Bob were just talking about? That memo, Anna, was essentially about what happens when investors have too much money and they're too eager to put it to work. And money, as you say, gets cheapened. I was riding around in a car in England in late 06, early 07, and I read that historically, English banks had been willing to give people a mortgage equal to three and a half times their salary until one bank said, we'll do four times. And another bank said, we'll do five times. And it seemed to me that this was an escalating auction for the opportunity to put out money. It's like an auction for a painting. When you have three professionals who want a painting, the bidding is moderate, the resulting price is fair. But when you have a bunch of amateurs and all they have is money and not too much discernment, then the price gets crazy and somebody overpays. The opportunity to own that painting goes to the highest bidder. Did he win the auction or did he lose? Likewise, the opportunity to make a loan or provide financing goes to the person who will accept the lowest return and the least safety. Does the person who wins that auction by bidding a low required yield and a weak document, does that person win the auction or lose? I think by winning the bidding, they lose the money. Yeah, most of the lending was done by banks, and it became clear that the banks were in sort of a feverish state 
trying to compete with each other to lend, especially to the private equity guys. It got into a pattern where there was a deal announced almost every Monday morning. You could count on a company being taken private. And when you looked at what the capital structure was and how it had been constructed, it was almost always taking the previous norms to a new extreme. It was hard to see how it was going to end well. And in fact, it didn't end well. But the only thing that really mattered in that space of time was who was willing to go to sort of the lowest common denominator and who was willing to do it the quickest. And the banks were falling all over themselves to do that. Chuck Prince got famous at that time, December 07. He actually said, when the liquidity dries up, this is going to end badly. He doesn't get credit for having said that. But he went on to say, but when the music's playing, you got to dance. And right now we're dancing. And he lost his job soon thereafter. What he should have said is, the music's crazy, it's too fevered, we're not going to dance. And the epicenter of all of this, of course, was real estate. There's no secret. Now it's very obvious what was going on, which is that all the cheap money was looking for a home, and it found it in the real estate market, and bid up to a level where it just wasn't sustainable anymore. As the year wore on, you started to see these kind of little embers in the air that indicated something bad was happening, but you couldn't quite tell where it was coming from. But the banks had really overextended themselves and really not thought through what was going to happen next. So, Bob, in one of Howard's memos from July of 2007, It's All Good, he writes that it's often hard to know when the pendulum will stop swinging in one direction, as you were just talking about some of the embers that you were seeing. So, I'm curious, what were some of the signposts that made you think that the cycle might be turning during this period? For me, there was two sort of watershed moments. One was I'd taken a trip up to my home state of Oregon, and it was in kind of a tertiary area of the state. And there was obviously massive real estate boom going on, people building all manner of homes. But what was eerie at the time was there were a number of just uncompleted houses with no activity going on. And it was clear that something had happened and that the banks weren't going to extend any more credit or somehow the person responsible for the development had fallen down. And that indicated to me the system was starting to seize. Sort of on a more direct level, we started to get inbounds from the banks that had done a lot of those private equity deals that I referenced and panicky inbounds about large amounts of debt that they had committed to that they were trying to get off their balance sheet. And it was clear they were trying to maintain a brave face on it, but it was clear that they had a problem and that problem wasn't going to be easily resolved because there was just this growing realization that, oh my gosh, what have we done here? Lo and behold, later that fall, early into the next year, we would have just caravans of banks coming through our office trying to offload all the unwise debt they had taken on to sort of win favor with the private equity firms. By the way, happening again. We're seeing a lot of that happen right now where the banks have done things that they probably regret and they're all coming to market. So very interesting to me about several of those 07 memos that Howard wrote. If you erased any references to the dates in those memos and then just asked somebody to judge when they were written, I think they could have been written in 2021 as well, because there's, in fact, references to SPACs, which, of course, were a huge feature of the 2021 run-up. There are references to covenants and how you had this systematic degradation, dismantling of covenant packages and all the deals. And that 
of course, was not just a feature of 2021, but it got most pronounced in 2021. You've seen a, a lot of the same behaviors that we saw in the run-up to that just more recently. So history is repeating itself a little bit here. So Howard, in a memo that you wrote, which was called, Now It's All Bad, you wrote, it's clear when the story of 2002 to 2007 is written, leverage and liquidity will be among the main players. You were obviously very right about that. Can you discuss the relationship between leverage and liquidity and why they're both so often at the heart of crises? I confess, I like to play blackjack. Once in a while, I go to the casino in Las Vegas. Now, I used to play for five bucks a hand. Now I've graduated to 20. I love the game, but I don't like to lose money. So I play for small stakes. And in Las Vegas, once in a while, the pit boss comes around and he says, the more you bet, the more you win when you win. And that proposition is unarguable. Of course, the more you bet, the more you win when you win. What he doesn't say is the more you lose when you lose. But in heady times, when everybody's thinking positive, they want to leverage up their investments. Now, leverage, using borrowed money in addition to your own capital, never makes an investment better. It merely magnifies the gains if there are gains and the losses if there are losses. But in optimistic times, people say, well, I'm only making this investment because I expect a positive outcome. So why shouldn't I lever it up and make more profit? So increasing use of leverage is a hallmark of every boom and every optimistic period. And liquidity comes into play because, again, going back to the race to the bottom, when providers of capital have a lot of money in their hands, they're usually eager to put it out. So people want leverage to magnify their gains. Providers of capital are glad to supply it because they have money they want to put to work. So they abet each other, if you think about it. And eventually, the individual investments and the investment industry, the world, become so highly levered that they can't get through a rough spot, and eventually a rough spot appears. One of my favorite sayings is never forget the person who was six feet tall who drowned crossing a stream that was five feet deep on average. The idea of survival on average is not a good idea. It's not a valid idea. You have to survive every day, which means you have to survive on the worst day. And the more leverage you have, the more money you owe, the more interest you have to pay out to service your debt, the less likely you are to get through on the bad days. And so increased use of leverage is always a hallmark of booming periods, and it always exacerbates the pain in the bearish periods. Just maybe keying off that, one of the things from this period in time that, again, maybe just a sign that things were starting to reverse, starting to deteriorate. One of the parts of the market we had started to focus on was structured credit, especially the RMBS market, and increasingly going to the point about leverage that Howard is making, we would look at these RMBS structures, which were relatively new at the time, been in existence for five, six, seven years, and look at the assumptions that were underlying the performance of various tranches of that RMBS. And most of those assumptions were based on historical averages that encompassed the prior two or three years, ignoring the prior 50, 60 years of data that you had in the housing market. I don't 
think it was any great insight on our part, but I think we realized the prior three years were not representative of what could happen in this market. A very distinct memory I have is one individual coming in who was trying to get us to invest in some of these instruments. And the meeting actually got quite heated to the point where I think he questioned our intelligence and maybe a few other things. And how could we not accept that things had changed, the housing market had entered a new phase, and we're going to make great returns if we could just understand that the few assumptions that were embedded into the analysis. We did not end up investing. And I think he may have sent a few emails after the fact for a while. But within a year, a lot of those structures had completely disintegrated. And it was evident that no, nothing had changed. The markets were still queuing to their historical standards and it had reverted back to the mean. So I think it just gives credence to what Howard said, which was he was preaching caution and making sure that we were skeptical at a time that others weren't. That paid off, at least in that instance, it paid off hugely because we would have lost all our money on any of the investments that individual was suggesting. Let's now jump into the crisis itself. Can you both describe some of your most salient memories from the heart of the crisis? Sure. As you know, the subprime mortgages started to default in large numbers. The mortgage-backed securities, RMBS, Bob mentioned residential mortgage-backed securities that had been fashioned from the subprime mortgages as collateral, started to melt down. We lost Bear Stearns as an independent company, Merrill Lynch, Washington Mutual Savings Bank, Wachovia Bank, AIG. And then on September the 15th of 08, Lehman Brothers went bankrupt. That really was a shock to the financial system. I came in on Monday and the question was very simple, what to do? There was a strong belief that the global financial system was going to melt down because most people foresaw falling dominoes. And we know who had gone under thus far. We all agreed who was next. I'm not going to use any names, but we knew this bank was next and that bank was next. And due to their reliance on each other, what was called counterparty risk, it felt like a string of dominoes that could not be arrested. I thought back to the movie called The China Syndrome. It was about a nuclear reactor that got out of control, and they were afraid that this out-of-control nuclear reaction would melt down through the earth to China. And this downward spiral of the financial system felt like that. And nobody had any idea what to do. Most people were frozen in fear. And I, with Bruce and Bob and joining our thoughts together, we thought about it. We reached an interesting conclusion that if we bought and the world melted down, it wouldn't matter. But if we didn't buy and the financial system didn't melt down, then we hadn't done our job. So it was compelling to invest. And in anticipation of something happening, we didn't know what, none of us thought that Lehman was going to go under, but in anticipation of some bad event happening, we had raised a fund and it was sitting mostly on the shelf. We invested it very patiently the day Lehman went under, we said, well, this is what we raised it for. Let's go. There's no way to prove we were at the bottom. There was no way to prove that the global financial system wouldn't melt down. But we thought it was our job to put it to work. Yeah, it's, it, I just add, to me, as odd as it may sound, the adjective that comes to mind in describing what was going on here at Oak Tree was normal. Yeah. It was a normal environment for us. And it was an environment I think we'd been set up for. 
it was clearly unprecedented. I mean, again, I joined during the TMT crisis that Howard referenced, and I thought that was unprecedented. Well, no, it wasn't. It's something much bigger than that happened five years later. But it felt like we were ready for it. We had the capital. And yeah, when you buy $200 million of bank debt, and then a week later, it's offered lower than what you bought it at, that could be a little disheartening. But generally speaking, we plowed forward. And what became apparent in retrospect was that there weren't too many people certainly investing on the scale that we were. And Howard's absolutely right. It was a fairly binary outcome. We would recover to some semblance of health or things would be in a very desperate state. We thought it was going to be the former. We invested like that. And again, I think it was kind of eerie calm, I guess I would say, in our practices. Right. You ask about vignettes that happened. And I'll never forget, I was speaking to a friend of mine who was a reporter for a newspaper, an ass reporter. He said to me, what are you doing in this morass? I said, we're buying. He says to me, you are? Like I was insane. What Bob was describing, I think back to a Rudyard Kipling poem in which he says, if you can keep your head when all those about you are losing theirs, you could be a success. And when Bob says that it felt like normalcy around Oak Tree, I think that's a pretty description of the state of affairs. The good news is that because we were worried in 05, 06 and into 07, we had really prepared for the eventuality that unfolded and cleared the decks. We didn't have a lot of troubled holdings that we had to spend our time fixing or rescuing. We were able to act in an affirmative manner and go out and spend money. And as I say, that's all you had to do. So as you're talking about keeping your head while others are losing theirs, that obviously is touching on this point of market psychology and the importance of understanding market psychology. And in your memo, Now It's All Bad, you write, the degree of risk present in a market derives from the behavior of the participants, not from securities, strategies, and institutions. Can you speak a little bit about that? 90% of what you have to know about investor behavior and market cycles is that in the real world, things fluctuate between pretty good and not so hot. And in the markets, views go from flawless to hopeless. Both flawless and hopeless are exaggerations. So when people think the outlook is flawless, they take on too much risk, they lever up too much, they pay prices that are too high, they're too eager to put to work. And of course, if they think it's flawless, those actions are based on unwarranted optimism. Then things change a little bit, and now people become hopeless. Now they don't want to own anything, and they're afraid that everything they own is going to go lower, and they better get out today because it'll be lower tomorrow. And since everybody feels that way, there are no buyers, and so prices cascade downward. Basically, that's what happens. I wrote a series of memos, I think starting, if I'm not mistaken, on July 1st of 07, called Once Said It's All Good, describing how everybody was optimistic about everything all around the world. Every asset class was booming in every country. Then a couple of weeks later, I think I wrote, it's all good, question mark, because there started to be some cracks. And is it really as good as people thought? And then a couple of months later, I think it was September, I wrote, now it's all bad, question mark. How did everything go from all good to all bad in three months? And the answer is, it was never as good as people thought it was in June, and it was never as bad as people thought it was in September. If you can moderate your own fluctuations so that your emotions don't seesaw 
so wildly, that's how you keep your head when others are losing theirs. I think Howard really put his finger on it a moment ago. Not only were we managing as a firm, especially in the more opportunistic strategies, a lot less than we had in the previous two or three years, there actually had been conscious decisions to sell out of assets that became very problematic, especially real estate assets. That was a function of just saying, somebody is willing to pay much more for this than we're willing to hold it for, so we're going to let it go. It's incredibly freeing to come in into a period of time that have very few or very minimal legacy issues to deal with and recognize that everybody else in the market is mesmerized by the losses that they're taking in their portfolio. So that reminds me of something we discussed, Bob, the last time you were on the podcast when we were talking about the memo, it's all a big mistake. And we talked about a quote of yours where you were discussing distressed investing and you said, our business is often an examination of flawed underwriting assumptions. So can you explain how this relates to what you were just talking about and really what you saw during the crisis? Yeah, and I think it actually relates pretty well to what we're seeing right now. You get these periods in time where you sometimes have very quick sort of sea change in market conditions, and you get to look back at what was done sometimes even six months before, maybe nine months before, and see how people were thinking about it and how terribly wrong they were, frankly. And I referenced the banks who had taken a lot of risk, particularly with the private equity firms, and really competed to get that risk onto their balance sheet. And within, let's call it a year, it all looked terrible. And the underwriting assumptions that I think the very, very simple truth of what they were doing there is assuming a persistence and even improvement in conditions that were already overheated. I think in that era, it became apparent that a lot of the assumptions the banks were using to put on this risk were just horribly misguided. And they realized that very quickly. It's very interesting, again, just to compare it today, the very significant and very dramatic change that has occurred is obviously the interest rate regime. You look at debt that was underwritten just probably at the end of last year even, and it looks horribly mispriced. This will be for both Bob and Howard. People often talk about lessons learned from a crisis, but what do you think are some of the key lessons that were not learned by investors from the global financial crisis? I think people learn lessons. They only don't last too long. When you have a meltdown, as we did in 08, 09, in the global financial crisis, what do they learn? Leverage can kill you. Risk aversion is essential. You must demand a margin of safety so that even if things don't go the way you had hoped, you'll still be okay. These are the lessons that people learn in crisis. Of course, they learn them to excess. They learn that risk is your enemy and risk bearing is just another way to lose money. They learn that they should take a cautious approach to investing, but they take that to mean they should never engage in it. But the thing is, people have short memories. In particular, on the one hand, you have prudence and memory and awareness of history and all the things that Bob and I have been discussing today. And on the other hand, you have the desire to get rich. When you get a few years from the episode, the desire to get rich takes over and the prudence and the memory recede. The quote that Howard puts in the race to the bottom, I thought was phenomenal. This is from John Kenneth Galbraith, there could be few fields of human endeavor in which history counts for so little as in the world of finance. And that sums up the last 12 years, I think, 
quite well. If you just look at it in a vacuum, we came close to a collapse of the modern financial system. And yet we turned around and went on an unprecedented run where we started to repeat all the same things that led to that situation. And you look at the expansion of debt, the degradation of the quality of that debt, obviously the mispricing of it. And you're now at a point, the government just pouring money into the situation. I think it's led us to the precipice of something potentially very similar. The one difference being the government doesn't have the ability to do what it did back in 2008, 2009. You have a... You mean because it already fired those weapons? It did, in fact. And firing them again, I think, would only make the situation a lot worse. One of the things that was always puzzling to me, maybe I just wasn't paying close enough attention, is why the enormous monetary expansion after the financial crisis didn't lead to a lot more inflationary behavior in the economy or a greater incidence of inflation. But it's clear that there were other factors at work, not the least of which is introduction of China into the global economy, a lot of productivity through technology innovations, the expansion of the world labor population as a whole. We are now at a point where a lot of those factors have run their course. I think all the governments, all the central banks have painted themselves into a pretty significant corner. So it'll be interesting from here. I think we're going to have to put up with an extended period of time of heightened rates, and it'll be interesting to see how the economy reacts. All investor psychology for the last even 14 years has been conditioned that these downdrafts in the market are simply buying opportunities. The financial crisis, people look at that and say, that was one of the great buying opportunities. We should have been more active. That's conditioned behavior to the point where I think people are even thinking that today. The real disaster scenario is where that turns out not to be the case, that we don't get the bounce, or at least the immediate bounce. I just want to add, Bob cites that great Galbraith quote. If you read on a couple sentences further, he goes on to say that anybody who does have a memory of the lessons of the past is dismissed as being too much of an old fogey to appreciate the modern wonders. That's another theme that echoes through every cycle. I think it's fair to say that we at Oak Tree felt like old fogies for a long time, but I don't know that we feel that way now. Exactly. So, Bob and Howard, do you have any final thoughts? What Bob and I have been talking about today is this, in my opinion, never-ending cycle of too much risk-taking in the up cycle, followed by too much depression in the down cycle. If you look at graphs on a comparable scale over the last 30, 40 years, whatever period you want to pick, you see that the economy has an upward trend and fluctuates rather little. Company profits fluctuate more because companies have leverage and the market oscillates wildly. So clearly the fluctuations of security prices are excessive relative to the fluctuations of the underlying fundamentals. And the reason is the excesses of psychology. This will always be the case. And so this progression from too optimistic to too pessimistic, you have to always bear it in mind and you have to try to be on the other side of it when it goes to excess. Back in the early 70s, somebody gave me a gift, one of the great first adages that I ever heard concerned the three stages of the bull market. The first stage, when only a few intelligent, forward-looking people understand that the problems we've been going through will come to an end and there can be improvement. The second stage, when most people accept that improvement is actually taking place. And the third stage, 
when everybody and his brother believes that things will only get better forever. It's extremely important to know which of the stages we're in and when the stage is erroneous. So in the first stage, there's too much pessimism, not enough optimism. That's the time to buy because security prices are low given the dearth of optimism. In the third stage, when everybody thinks things will get better forever, that's this flawlessness that I mentioned before that takes security prices too high on an excess of optimism and you're riding for a fall. And this will always be seen, but you just can't succumb and you can't be part of the herd. You have to diverge at the right time. And really, if you think about it, that's what this podcast is about. I want to pick up on at least one thing Howard said there in that when you look at the 40-year sweep of financial history, the sort of one trend that stands out is the unrelenting decline in real interest rates and the, the corresponding rise as a result of that in asset values. And I guess I would just offer the question, are we at a sea change where a lot of that is going to reverse? A lot of the underlying factors that drove that decline in real interest rates have started to reverse. You've seen a dramatic change in the interest rate regime just in the last 12 months. Maybe that's temporary, but maybe it's permanent and maybe it gives rise to the next stage of a down cycle. So if I were to proffer a point of view here, I, I think we are in the latter part of the third stage of what Howard just described. And I think it's going to get quite interesting from here on out. Well, thank you both for a really interesting discussion. Good. Thank you, Anna, for good questioning. Yes. Thanks, Anna. And thank you, Howard. Thank you for listening to The Memo by Howard Marks. To hear more episodes, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. This podcast expresses the views of the author as of the date indicated, and such views are subject to change without notice. Oak Tree has no duty or obligation to update the information contained herein. Further, Oak Tree makes no representation, and it should not be assumed that past investment performance is an indication of future results. Moreover, wherever there is a potential for profit, there is also the possibility of loss. This podcast is being made available for educational purposes only and should not be used for any other purpose. The information contained herein does not constitute and should not be construed as an offering of advisory services or an offer to sell or solicitation to buy any securities or related financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Certain information contained herein concerning economic trends and performances based on or derived from information provided by independent third-party sources. Oak Tree Capital Management LP, Oak Tree, believes that the sources from which such information has been obtained are reliable. However, it cannot guarantee the accuracy of such information and has not independently verified the accuracy or completeness of such information or the assumptions on which such information is based. This podcast, including the information contained herein, may not be copied, reproduced, republished, or posted in whole or in part in any form without the prior written consent of Oak Tree. Audiation.